Hi everyone, welcome to the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. This is your host and producer of the podcast, Randy Kim. I am so eager to share with you my next guest for this week's episode. Her name is Teresa Lee. We met back in 2012 when she shared her story growing up as an undocumented Korean in Chicago and how her story would influence U.S. Illinois Senator Dick Durbin to draft the original DREAM Act bill in 2000, which, 20 years later, has yet to pass Congress. She would become one of the original activist leaders behind the DREAM movement and the fight for legalization for all undocumented immigrants. Fast forward several years later, she is now married and the mother of three young children. She recently finished her doctorate in musical arts from the Manhattan School of Music. She remains very active in the fight to support undocumented immigrants and for racial and social justice for all. When I spoke to her, she shared her experiences in dealing with the COVID-19 crisis and the anti-Asian racism she experienced. She talked about her research of Antonin Dvorak, a Czech classical composer who mentored Black and Indigenous composers, including one of America's earliest Black composers, Harry T. Burley, for her doctorate program. We dive into her conversations with her mom on anti-blackness and why supporting Black Lives Matter is critical to other movements such as the call to abolish ICE and the prison industrial complex. She opened up about the trauma of growing up undocumented and the story about meeting her music teacher who would soon change her life. Be ready to shed some tears, but to also feel inspired after hearing her remarkable journey. You don't want to miss this episode. Special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Viet-American-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or t-shirt and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or on Instagram at Lawrence and Argyle or on their Facebook page. Hi, everyone. So today I am joined with a good friend of mine who I've known since 2012. Her name is Teresa Lee. So to give you a quick introduction of who Teresa Lee is, uh, she's been a longtime activist, one of the original pioneers behind the DREAM Act, though, that uh, U.S. Illinois Senator Dick Durbin co-sponsored. She is a pianist and has traveled in many places performing, living in NYC with her now three kids, which is hard to believe, because I think when I had met, uh, the last time I had met Teresa was back in 2013, and you were still kidless back, childless back then. <laughs> so it's like, the, just to see the changes is just incredible. And, um, and going further, you also received your doctorate just recently, so congratulations. And, and I found out that, um, from our previous discussion that it's on music performance and theory, uh, which is very immigrant related. So I would like to talk more about that topic, but uh, Teresa, thank you so much. It is so great to be reunited with you. How are you feeling today in New York City? Um, Randy, thank you. And um, I'm I'm so excited about this talk. And uh, well, um, quarantining in New York City in our tiny little apartment, is uh has been um tricky but we make it work because it's not just about ourselves it's about our community and our neighborhood 
um, neighbors and um, and we we care and we're trying to um, fight the coronavirus pandemic right so yeah. we're doing our part yeah yeah it's it's it is a very stressful time for everyone involved and I cannot imagine living going into 2020 that this would be our reality that we would be on lockdown that we are facing issues on mask wearing uh, of all things and and also the fact that safety is such an everyday issue for all of us and and how important it is to do it collectively speaking and and I want to say congratulations again on getting your doctorate it, it just happened uh, right and also what led you to go for your doctorate and uh, what have you learned in the work that you're doing as you were pursuing your uh, doctorate degree? Yeah. Um, so uh, with the, um, I, I just, I want to comment actually about the mask wearing that I, I think that, oh. um, and then I'll get to your yes. other question. The, the mask wearing, I think is, it's very interesting because American culture uh, in general is very individualistic and there is a lack of the sense of togetherness in our culture and the mask wearing is one of the incidents that it, it just, it, the, the, uh, the way our culture, it, it is, it fails um, with uh, controlling the, um, pandemic and uh, and also the lack of togetherness it plays in part in uh, our healthcare crisis our uh, housing crisis the the, uh, the water clean water crisis and all of it you know it really uh, is uh, connected um, and unless uh, our government can bring people together uh, and we can all wear masks, not because I'm not sick or the other person's not sick. It's because we, you know, we're part of this all together. It's not, <laughs> you know, it's not just about ourselves. And I think it, uh, it's uh, something that is so deep in our culture, uh, the individualism that does not work with all these crises, crises that's uh, happening right now. It is very sad that we have mm -hmm. to do these PSA announcements. <laughs> like it, it's, it's just really, and you're right because Americans are, have this non-conformity uh, unlike Asia, unlike Europe where conformity seems to be uh, more in line. But in America, it's about liberties. It's about freedom. It's about, um, our wants and desires and our own pursuit of the American dream and to be told what to do seems like, um, it seems like a middle finger to uh, this, this exceptionalism that Americans or America has tried to prop itself for as long as it's been around. Uh, mm -hmm. So it, it's quite an interesting take on this whole topic. It, it just, we're still, like what we're 143,000 dead as of July 22nd and we're not even hitting into the second wave so it's bracing ourselves yeah. and unfortunately having to deal with the realities but I know what 
uh, Teresa, one of the things I've always respected about you is that you've um, been a long time activist and these are things that you've never been afraid to share and to share your stories and to uplift other folks. And, and uh, yeah, but getting back to the uh, doctorate, uh, yeah, I, I think it's amazing. I, I, I can now call you Dr. Lee or Dr. Kirkham. Mm -hmm, Dr. Lee. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or you don't have to call me Dr. Lee. <laughs> I go by Teresa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, it's a, but, it, but it's amazing, but it's well-deserved. It's well-deserved. I know this is something Thanks. that you've worked so hard on. I was wondering if you can give us an insight about what, uh, what led you to get into your doctorate and mm -hmm. what you have gained out of that experience uh, pursuing your doctorate. Absolutely. Um, for someone like myself, I grew up in poverty, I was undocumented, and college was just out of the question. Uh, and I was given an opportunity to go to college, to attend college. I finished my undergrad and grad, and I didn't know what else I could do with my career. And I uh, thought, you know, why not go for the highest? there is the doctorate and reach for the stars. <laughs> and so uh, it took a long time. It took several years and um, it was, um, uh, it was a tough journey. And, um, but I am uh, happy to say that uh, I, I am now officially certified uh, doctorate <laughs> with a doctorate degree. Um, and there was, uh, when I started the doctorate, I uh, was trying to think, what could I write about in my thesis that's different? Um, and I really wanted to talk about immigration in music. How would I talk about that? Um, I decided that I was going to... Um, discuss immigrant composers from around the world that came to America and made America their home. And through the sounds that they heard in America and the memories uh, that they brought with them from their home country, uh, they were able to create uh, something um, that was very new and different. Uh, and each of these composers, um, they have a tying thread, a common thread that um, I believe that makes them American. <laughs> um, and one of the composers is not even American. Um, he's, uh, he did not stay in America because of so much racism. Uh, as we're talking about racism and his name is Anton Vorjak and Vorjak was from Czech uh, Republic um, and he came to New York City to become a director of the American Conservatory of Music and what the, the first thing that Vorjak did was actually to open up the conservatory to African-American and Native Americans for free in 1892. That was unheard of. And uh, he also went beyond that. He, um, he nurtured these African-American composers and uh, artists. 
um, he organized the first ever all black chorus in Madison Square Garden. And this was a huge concert and the reviews were ecstatic, except for some of the, uh, the, uh, the higher ed um, critics like at Harvard or Yale. Um, there was one instance in the Yale Review, Horatio Parker uh, was an American composer. He said that uh, African-American music and Native American music uh, was not of higher genres. They were not of higher genres. And so therefore their music was not included in the curriculums in the conservatories or in music schools. Uh, so there is a lot of the institutional racism that's uh, uh, been put into the system um, and the art work of these uh, African-American composers were buried by uh, these um, people in power. It's very interesting how you bring this history up and thank you for sharing the work of Antonina Dvorak uh, and uh, African-American music uh, has always or African-American people have been excluded in classical music, opera. And when you think of classical and opera music, it's very classist. It's also very white-centered and for predominantly wealthy white folks. So when you think of who goes to opera houses or goes to musicals, going to um, symphony orchestras, it's predominantly white. And this has always been an institution that has been that way for centuries. So uh, one of the people that you bring up uh, that Voracek uh, had mentored was Harry Burley, who was the first African-American black composer or African-American slash black composer. So I was wondering if you were able to shed some light into Burley's work, because I know that we had talked about it uh, in our previous discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, Harry T. Burley was one of Vorjak's um, star students. And the way he came into Vorjak's school, into the American Conservatory, was by complete luck and miracle. Uh, he, his grandfather was a freed slave uh, and his grandfather sang to him a lot of spirituals. Um, and so, and uh, Harry Burley, uh, his job was to turn on the lamps in the evenings on the streets. Um, and uh, he was waiting tables at uh, a very wealthy uh, white person's home. And they, um, he, he, he heard a singer singing and he really wanted to sing. And he had a beautiful voice. And so he applied for this school that Borjak opened up for free to African-Americans um, and he got a letter of acceptance uh, and he didn't have money to travel there. So he raised money in his community and he got there. It was um, completely by miracle. It was kind of sort of like my story, uh, you know, college was an impossibility for me and I went. <laughs> 
uh, and uh, Harry T. Burley, uh, he made it work. And, and uh, he became the first African-American composer uh, to bring um, African-American music, the spirituals into the concert stage. So when you hear songs like Deep River, that's Harry T. Burley. Wow. When you hear the operatic voice behind it, that's Harry T. Burley. Wow. Thank you for bringing his name into the light here. Because uh, when you think of Black music, especially in, in the beginning stages of rock and roll, where we talk about, or we still haven't reconciled with the erasure of Black music and contribution to current pop rock and roll dance music that was appropriated like Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, who benefited greatly from uh, Black musicians. Uh, what I've also learned um, more recently is the work of Sister Rosetta Tharp, who uh, is a, a Black woman who is not only a singer, but she plays a mean Les Paul guitar. She plays electric guitar. And this is back in the 1950s. She had mentored or was a role model for black rock and roll musicians like Little Richard, uh, Ike Turner, uh, Chuck Berry. And they were seen as the pioneers of rock and roll, but yet her work as a black woman was erased. And no one knew about her. I mean, there's still like people, there are not even a percent of Americans know who she is, yet she was the standard, she was the bearer of rock and roll music. So I think like hearing about Harry, um, Harry Burley's work is so critical to uncovering the history of music and also the, the racial barriers that have existed that have prevented uh, uh, musicians, artists, uh, activists, and other people of different professions to be credited for the work that they have contributed to America and ultimately on a global level. So it is very upsetting when you hear about the cultural appropriation, the credit that's been stolen from black uh, folks for as long as it's been, as long as America has been around. So I, I thank you for bringing his name into the light there and, uh, and, Going into the topic of anti-Blackness, this is a topic that has resurfaced in light of the George Floyd murder, uh, the ongoing case of Breonna Taylor, and you know the murder of Ahmaud Arbery and so many other uh, Black folks who were uh, murdered through police brutality. So, you know, in our own Asian community, we are still having to figure out how to talk to our community members about anti-blackness, colorism. Um, you know, the Asian and black solidarity has always been very, uh, has always been a very difficult relationship. I mean, the LA riots is, is an example. Um, there is the model minority myth that continues to work Asians against black and brown communities and within our own communities. And, you know, a couple of years ago, some of my family members have voiced their support for Trump in Florida of all places, which is a battleground state for those who don't know. And it has 
affected my relationship with my family members to this day where I still can't have a conversation with them because their views are very toxic. But yet at the same time, there is a responsibility as an Asian person to have these difficult conversations because we're not because we're not making uh, our voices heard enough and that the anti-blackness and having the adjacent to white supremacy will eventually harm our community as if it's already as if it's not already harming our communities so i wanted to get your take on the anti-blackness within your own community and your own family circles? Is this a discussion that you're actively working on with your own family and friends? Yeah, yeah, constantly. Um, so yeah, this is a very important topic because you know what I believe is that we're not going to be free. None of us until black lives are free. Um, I think that Asian Americans are not free. We think we are, we're not. Uh, there is a lot of attacks on Asian Americans. Um, Asian Americans are not um, part of the white supremacy. Um, uh, they think they are, <laughs> but we're not. Um, and so in reality, I, I believe that we need all of us um, black, brown, Asian, native, uh, LGBTQ, and disabled, pure, poor, uh, poor people, the undocumented people, all of us, um, to be free, we need black lives to be free. Um, and that's what I truly believe. And within my own community, I have these discussions. Um, for instance, with my mom, <laughs> um, she remembers the LA riots. And that, uh, even though she was not in LA, just Koreans all around the world, they were impacted by the stories um, and by the family members that they did have or friends that did, uh, they had that were um, affected by the LA riots. Um, and, uh, but what's really important to, for, Korean Americans to understand, for everyone to understand, is that the LA riots, uh, when the Korean uh, stores were attacked, guess what? The police did not come to save them. The state of California did not come to save them because they were not part of that white supremacy. They were not part of that, uh, of that, uh, um, that, that luxury. They didn't have that luxury. They were also suppressed. Um, and so this is what I'm talking about, that Asian Americans will not be free either until black lives are freed. Um, and this, this is something that I discuss with my mom a lot uh, about anti-blackness, about the history of racism and slavery. Um, I think it's important for her, uh, it was important for her to 
understand the history and empathize and realize how unequal our societies have been built in the structures of our cities, in our workplaces, in schools, all the way down to our history books. Um, and, and, and so these are uh, uh, the only way to make this better is to start having these conversations like you're doing right now through this podcast. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievably frustrating when I go on the Vietnamese and Cambodian Facebook groups and I see a lot of anti-blackness. Um, but then there's also a number of folks uh, to uh, also acknowledge that they have expressed the same anger and fury that we do and that we're just thinking about how or this honestly should be a conversation we should be having for years. This is not something that should just happen right now um, when this has been ongoing, but to really examine the divisions in our communities, the, uh, the, the level of education, the, the way we bring our talking points, what is the connecting way to bring uh, both um, to, to have a better understanding, a well-rounded understanding of Black issues and why it affects Asian American issues and uh, why uh, Black lives have to matter, which is a very sad conversation to be having if you think about it because why should why do we have to have a conversation where where uh, black people should just exist and I find it to be so upsetting thinking about that why are we having these conversations where uh, where it just feels like it goes to that uh, going just to the very basics of they should just survive they deserve mm -hmm. to live Right. Right. I think there's uh, another um, kind of a psychological issue that we're struggling with, which is that we are we feel threatened. People feel threatened when they say when they hear Black Lives Matter, they feel threatened. How about my life? <laughs> you know? Yes. And um and part of that being feeling of being threatened is really the misunderstanding and the lack of education uh, and the way our history books have been written. Um, and so education and empathy goes hand in hand. Um, and like I said, the discussions uh, that we're having is very important. And how are you with your mom and that discussion so far? Oh, we're great. She, uh, she's come a long way. And I think she's, um, uh, she, she's as progressive as uh, one can get <laughs> right now. That's amazing. And it, it mm -hmm. tells you like the level of labor that you have to constantly do. I mean, it's, it's a very thankless job to be doing when you're educating and, uh, and trying to empathize with their struggles, not invalidate them, but at the same time also find these issues mm -hmm. that they are so against to connect that mm -hmm. to their own personal struggles. Yeah, for my mom, uh, you know, I, I respect my mom. She's uh, my mom. And, uh, and it, it was difficult to have these conversations because, you know, I had, had to acknowledge her fears as well. Um, 
and uh, and 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 like I said, empathy goes a long way. It it goes in all. It, you need empathy in all directions in every possible way. Yeah, and also with the COVID nineteen crisis, anti Asian uh, hate crimes have been escalating. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you living in New York City with your three children, mm-hmm. it is a constant, uh, it's a constant safety issue. And I remembered when the stay at home, well, before stay at home was happening, you know, my mom would be terrified every time I would leave the house and wondering if I'm going to, uh, you know, be in any crowded public space, not just because of the virus itself, but also the fact that I could experience a hate crime. And Mm -hmm. that was telling for me, my brother who is taller than me, I'm six foot, my brother is six foot two. Wow. And he went to a local grocery store and he got some very mean stares in Mm -hmm. my family hometown, which is like outside of Chicago. And he felt so unsafe in that environment that like he talked about getting pepper spray. And this is a guy who is in good shape, who's in physically mm-hmm. good shape, a 6'2 Asian man. Mm-hmm. But it also kind of tells you the, the level of, of fear that the Asian American communities are having or Asians across the globe living in non-Asian countries are, that are dealing with the anti-Asian racism. So, um, was this an experience that you had uh, during this whole period of the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I actually experienced some hate crimes myself. <laughs> um, I was uh, walking home with um, loads of groceries uh, on my back and, and uh, a man, you know, he angrily walked up to me and uh, kicked a trash can towards me and I dodged it and he yelled at me, uh, go back to China with your coronavirus. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm laughing right now because it's just ridiculous. But um, at the moment, I was really shocked and I was, uh, I ignored the guy and walked away as fast as I could. And the, uh, the fear that was inflicted on me, I, it, all the way home, I was afraid of anyone else that might kick a trash can at me or yell at me or think that I was a threat to them. Um, and I, uh, unfortunately, uh, this is a reality for so many Asian Americans right now. Um, I think this is uh, a huge fault of Trump um, calling this virus the, um, uh, what what does he call it? The- Kung flu. uh, Kung flu and like the Chinese virus. And this is misinformation. Like I said, people are misinformed. Sorry, I was getting a call. <laughs> I, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people are largely misinformed, um, and 
and uh, uneducated and um, this is how you feed uh, racism and xenophobia and uh, the anti-immigrant attacks are going to continue if this misinformation continues. Thank you for sharing your story. And I'm really sorry that this was the experience that you had to deal with. Uh, unfortunately, as I look at my Facebook feed, I do read on Asian hate crimes that are happening. And some of them happen to be my friends who were affected. And it's very triggering to me because when I talked to Kathy Park Hong, who wrote Minor Feelings in Asian American Reckoning, and she also wrote the New York Times op-ed piece, the story I never expected to hear in 2020. She wrote a page from her book that felt very telling. Like when Trump's election happened, it wasn't, it was the anticipation that was the buildup of it that caused so much anxiety in our community. We go back to the time when we remembered our racist experience from our childhood. You know, the first time it felt like to be caught a Jap or, um, the first time that we uh, that we recalled a chink, and it reminds us of that our belonging is conditional. It never is permanent for us. And I think with this virus, it just again reinforces that we never truly belong, especially for those living in the diaspora. And um, and which also brings up the story of how you came to America and also uh, the challenges that you're facing or that your family was facing with being legalized in America. And when I came into KRCC, which is known as the Korean American Resource and Culture Center, now known as the HANA Center, back in 2012, I had lived in Korea for three years and just came back to Chicago uh, a few months uh, uh, about, I think I would gotta say it was February 2012. And then I had started KRCC uh, July of 2012. Uh, a week later, a week or two later, I believe, uh, President Obama uh, uh, launched the executive order, which is DACA, uh, which allowed for uh, undocumented immigrants that came to the US when they were like about maybe a few months old to the United States. And I think it was like a range from if you're between 15 years old to 30 years old. But besides the point that uh, it allowed non-deportation to happen for those under that age range who are going to school, um, who are working. But during that time, I had not been as up to date about immigration issues. Uh, I was kind of very sheltered, even going to UIC, uh, which is the University of Illinois Chicago, which is fairly diverse, but I was really away from the immigration movements that were happening in the 2000s era. And uh, for, uh, for myself coming in, I had no idea about what undocumented means. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until KRCC invited you to speak to a group of youths about two weeks after DACA was enforced or was uh, released, uh, and that you spoke your story with uh, the aides of Senator Dick Durbin. And I remembered how nervous you were sharing your story. I remember how, um, I, I don't want to speak for you in that part, but it felt like 
it was opening up a lot of fresh wounds, you know, of your own experiences and the reality of DACA was just sinking in for you. So, um, but I also want to say that hearing your story gave me a better idea of why uh, the issues uh, relating to undocumented immigrants is so wrong and, and also just very inhumane. And just to get in, uh, and to give us a better idea of of why people are undocumented. So just hearing your story really gave me so many different layers as to why this fight is so important and why legalization is so difficult in this country. So I, I really want to say thank you for sharing that story because it really uh, drew me in to learn more about you. I and mean, we became friends like right off the bat, just from that day and just see the impact that your work has had you know since then so i wanted to give you the uh, opportunity to talk about the uh about how your family came to america and uh, what the experience of going through all these barriers have been like for you uh, during this period mm -hmm. yeah thank you um well uh the reason why my parents decided to start over in America is a long story, but in short, they were in Korea uh, living in the destructions of the aftermath of the Korean War. They were living in a third world country in Seoul, which is the capital city of Korea. It was a third world country when they were growing up there. They were living in shacks with U.S. tanks rolling by with canned foods and Bibles. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and life was very difficult. Uh, and they, so they decided to start over. They moved to uh, Brazil. A Kore uh, there was a Korean community there that had settled. Uh, and then they ran into another trouble a relative of theirs stole all their money in a bank account in their bank account and so my mom decided to sell her wedding ring and some other jewelry and with that money they bought visas and plane tickets to the united states so now we were in chicago living in a basement apartment that did not have heat or hot water and there were bugs and mice and uh, every time it rained it would flood and but this is how we lived we were undocumented we became undocumented my dad was trying to gain a religious workers visa and it just didn't work out and there were uh there was no other way that we could get out of this hole and they kept working hard and hard to try and get legal status. Uh, and of course, we did not have money to fly out of the country. And if we were to be deported, I would be sent to Brazil, my birthplace, and my parents to South Korea, and my little brother who was born in Chicago to some foster care. Mm. Uh, meaning my family would be separated. And so, um, it was very tough growing up um, in America, in Chicago, being undocumented 
I became muted because I did not want, I'm undocumented to, to just slip out of my tongue. And that was a real fear every day. And even at night, I would be drenched in sweat, waking up from a nightmare of police storming up our uh, stairs and breaking down our door and taking my family away from me. And this, this is the kind of trauma, that PTSD that uh, I grew up with and other undocumented uh, Americans deal with this every day. Mm. And you, and along the time, along the way, um, I remembered one particular story, or there's actually a few that sticks out to my mind. And your brother uh, was walking down the street and was hit by a person who was driving on her cell phone. Mm -hmm. And in that story, you know, your brother was badly injured, but uh, there was an opportunity to hold the woman who was driving accountable. And your dad decided to not go further, knowing that she would be responsible for the medical issue, the medical bills that would come mm -hmm. up. And with having non-legal status, uh, that was impossible to pay off. I mean, even for anyone with health insurance to pay off uh, a, a very serious injury uh, that your brother sustained is, is almost next to impossible. So I was wondering if you're able to share that experience and what that has conditioned you, especially in your encounters with police officers and with uh, community members, family, friends, or friends that you grew up in the community through school and whatnot, that must have really uh, guarded you even further away from people that want to be close to you, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, my little brother was crossing the street and a car came speeding and the driver was uh, talking on her cell phone and she wasn't watching and she hit my brother. My brother flew into the air and we all witnessed him flying into the air and falling down and we ran towards him and, and we thought he had died. And I, I was screaming. I remember screaming and crying and it was it was like, oh my God, what happened? And, and uh, long story short, he was in the ER. Um, they said he would have brain injury and he had a cast all the way up to his hip. Um, he survived the accident, luckily, very mm. uh, miraculously. And the lady who had hit him was with us in the ER waiting area with the policeman he, with his note and his pen about to jot down the report of what happened. And my dad quickly said to the lady who hit my brother, you're free to go. And the lady said, what? And my dad said, it's okay. You're free to go. My son is at fault. He did not look both ways before crossing which was completely untrue. And, and so the lady, she was in tears and she thanked my dad profusely and she left. And the police said, are you sure? To my dad and my dad said, yes. And so that's what the police wrote down. 
And he said, okay, we're done. And he left. And that was it. My mm. family was in the ER waiting area by ourselves. And I was in shock. I said, what? what? Why did you do that? We're going to have tens of thousands of dollars in bills, hospital bills. And um, we're already poor and broke. And what are we going to do now? And my dad said, I had to do it to protect us from being deported from our family from being separated. Um, and that was the reality. That was when I started to understand more and more what being undocumented really meant was that we had no rights at all mm. to collect any rights. There was nothing that we could do. We had nothing in this country. Mm. Thank you for sharing your story about your brother. I met your brother twice and yeah. he's very he's very sweet and how's he doing by the way he's doing great he does not have brain injury and he uh, can walk <laughs> yeah because i look at him i'm like he looks very healthy very well-rounded i know he's uh, one of your big supporters too and um yeah. and he's a great guy so if you see him tell him i said hi because i was thinking about him uh during this I will. Too. um there was a person that was very special in your life. Um, her name is Anne Monaco. And I remembered when you shared her story, this is the one that always pulls my heartstrings because this is a person who was your piano teacher and you grew up playing the piano as a, as a kid. And I know hearing your story, playing the piano was your escapism. It was your way to not think about being undocumented. Uh, and you were so focused on playing piano that you became one of the premier young students who was up and coming and you were getting colleges looking for you. You know, you have all these uh, institutes that were very serious about having you on and you had the grades to qualify. Um, and at that time, you still had to keep your status unchecked or at least stat or i should say uh your status um uh your status uh not disclosed and uh when you were uh when you were looking to when you're hearing all these uh colleges going after you college was not an option as you had mentioned earlier and your parents as much as they had valued you studying hard it was not an option for you but and monaco did not accept your um no for an answer and i was wondering if you could share about that mm -hmm. uh, experience when you were a senior and dealing with the talk of college and figuring out what to do after high school mm -hmm. yeah definitely uh so after my brother's car accident, I thought of ways that I could, what, that I could do to help my family because we were in a crisis. We had no money. Sometimes we had no food. We were in such deep poverty. Um, and I, because uh, I was undocumented, I thought I could not go to college. Uh, and that's a, just a mindset that was very deep and engraved. And I decided that I was going to um, make money by playing the piano. 
because I had a piano um, when I was seven by a wealthy church member who uh, donated a piano <laughs> for me, um, to me. And I practiced the piano all day, every day, uh, until I came to a point, I hit a wall, I said, I really need a teacher. So I began searching for teachers all around Chicago, and I found this school um, called Merritt School of Music, and Anne Monaco was the artistic director of the school. And I auditioned, and they gave me a full scholarship to the school, and I immersed myself into practicing the piano. I wanted to be the best at it. And soon I won a big competition. I got to perform Tchaikovsky Concerto with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And I won some other competitions at Mira School of Music. And uh, then Anne Monaco approached me. I was 17 years old and she said, what colleges are you applying to? And I said, I'm not going to college. And she said, what? Everybody goes to college. And so she printed out 10 college applications for me and handed them to me and said, go fill this out and bring it back to me. So that's what I did. I brought them back to her the next day, all 10 of them, because that's how diligent I was. <laughs> <laughs> and she looked at them and she said, your social security number is blank. Bring it back to your parents and ask them for your social security number. And I didn't say anything. I just said, okay. <laughs> and I knew I didn't have a social security number, so I didn't even ask my parents. I just brought them back to her the next day, and uh, it was empty again. And she asked me, well, why is this empty? And I burst into tears, and I told her that I'm undocumented. Please don't tell anyone and uh, I told her, don't report me to the police because I don't want to be responsible for separating my family. And she was stunned and she didn't know what that meant. She didn't know what undocumented meant. Nobody knew what that meant. Mm. In fact, at that time, um, the word I used was, we were illegal. Undocumented mm. is a- uh, What year was uh, it? Uh, what year was it? This was year 2000. Mm. This was year 2000, 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, and speaking of the 20 years ago, the movement back then was, there was no movement. There was no Dream Act movement, no immigrant movement. There weren't any dream teams in college campuses. There was no support. Um, immigration offices had, they did not lobby Congress for any immigration legislation. There was no such thing back then. And so understandably, Anne Monaco didn't know what I was talking about, but she became the best ally that anybody could ever ask for. Uh, and she uh, called me into her office and said, Teresa, do you trust me? And I said, yes, I do. Because she was like my mother. She took care of me. She made sure that I had food each day when I came to practice at the school. Um, and long story short, she and I, we contacted our Senator Durbin in Chicago 
And he said there was nothing that he could do for us, that I was at a dead end. And even if I had the cure for cancer, that I would have to be deported back to Brazil. That was the answer that they gave me. And, and Monaco did not stop there. What she started to do was uh, help me gather letters of support from everyone that knew me, my teachers, the donors, um, people all around me. And we gathered all those letters and brought them to Senator Durbin. And Senator Durbin saw the letters and he said, okay, there's one thing that I can uh, do, which is to write a personal bill on behalf of you so you can go to college and be on a path to citizenship. And I was shocked. Wow, this is amazing. I'm going to get to go to college and I'm not going to be undocumented anymore uh, if this personal bill passes. And there was a high chance that the bill was going to pass. And so it was up um, for a vote and other uh, undocumented students heard about this bill, the word got out, and they started approaching Senator Durbin uh, quietly um, in his parking lots. And they, sorry, my kids. That's okay. So, um, so then Senator Durbin realized that he needed to redraft this personal bill into a larger bill. And that larger bill became known as the DREAM Act. Wow, and I was wondering what your parents must have thought when they heard that your story, their story is now public, now that your teacher knows about it. I, I cannot imagine having your parents having to find out the way they did and mm -hmm. the fears and trying to know that all of a sudden it's in the hands of a U.S. senator, uh, no less, mm -hmm. and and it was helping you to mobilize community members. I was wondering what that must have been like for your family to hear this, and and also I was wondering if Anne had contacted your parents to calm them down, um, because I know that that must be this. I mean, hearing this would terrify my parents uh, if I were in that situation, because my parents come from war, and if I were to go public. And this is a lot of the experience of Asian, second generation Asian Americans are, you know, by protesting or, you know, going against the police, it, it harm, it, it brings back the trauma that they experienced in their homeland where uh, military, police, law enforcement have harmed their communities and they've seen it happen in person where people go missing. But in your case, this was putting your family at risk. So I, I was wondering about your family's reaction. How were you able to work through that challenge? Mm -hmm. Yeah, when uh, I told them that, um, I, I didn't know how to tell my parents that I told somebody that we were undocumented. <laughs> and when I did tell them, they were, they were beyond angry. Uh, and afraid and we started discussing what we're, what we're going to do if the worst uh, happened the worst case scenario which would be that 
uh, we, we would be separated. Me to Brazil, my parents to Korea, and my little brother in uh, foster care. What are we going to do? And so they uh, planned out what we were gonna, going to do. And that was the reality of uh, what needed to be done. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so the 2001 DREAM Act bill was introduced uh, by Senator Dick Durbin. And there was a hearing that you were supposed to testify along with other undocumented youths. What happened during that, uh, during that hearing? Mm -hmm. Or did the hearing yeah. happen? Yeah. So the hearing was set for September 12, 2001. And I was getting ready to fly to DC to testify and to perform on uh, the piano for some senators on 9-11, when the 9-11 terrorist attacks happened and all flights were canceled. The hearing the next day was canceled. Everything was canceled. And at that time, I didn't know uh, what was going on. Um, and, and after several years passed by, we realized, I realized, and the country realized what uh, happened was, there was a terrorist attack on American soil and the way the government reacted to it was by fear. Um, and they, uh, uh, they exploited that fear uh, by, they exploited the fear by, um, by attacking the immigrants on our own soil, uh, by their combating terrorism meant that they were going to uh, create border security. They were going to uh, create a, a new DHS and ICE patrols, uh, CBP, and they were going to start checking people's identities, uh, trying to divide people in America more and more, um, basically making immigrants the terrorists. The way they dealt with it was by, basically by blaming immigrants. Mm -hmm. Instead of, really combating terrorism because one thing that people um, need to remember is that the terrorists that attacked 9-11, they did not come illegally. They came with uh, legal visas. <laughs> and uh, all of the, the, the uh, uh, ICE and the CBP, um, and the SCOM secure communities that they created, they did not catch terrorists. Instead, they raided millions of immigrants' homes and deported, in Obama's case, 3.5 million mm. undocumented Americans. Uh, so this was... Um, after 9-11, what happened was an attack on immigrants um, to combat terrorism. And the effect that it had 
on us today is that, well, one, obviously, no immigration legislation, no friendly immigration legislation was going to have a chance of passing. So the DREAM Act had no chance. Even if it was reintroduced in 2003, 2005, 2007 with the support of the Pentagon, the Pentagon needed soldiers on ground in Iraq. They said, hey, let's bring in the dreamers. If they serve two years in a war in Iraq, we'll give them uh, full tuition for college and a path to citizenship. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, this is uh, one example of using dreamers as a bargaining chip. Yeah. And a good immigrant versus bad immigrant too. And I mean, that also extended exactly. back to Bill Clinton's 1996 immigration bill. I mean, I mean, this is a narrative that we're also seeing for legal immigrants, especially in the Cambodian, Lao, Hmong, Vietnamese communities where deportations are escalating, but they've always been happening, but it just seems to double down, especially with those who have had minor criminal history when they were teenagers. And then 20 years later, they already had families establish their own businesses. And yet they are uh, getting grounds for deportation. So it tells you like the level of, it's not that it's more than just the law. It's, about human rights. It's about what is really just. And uh, the DREAM Act bill, as you, as you pointed out, has failed so many times by just mere few votes or not been introduced to one chamber of con Congress, namely the 2013 bill. Um, I want to go back and continue in Monaco, like after the 9-11 and also uh, also her level of involvement and how close you became as a result of her, uh, as her, her being your confidant and your mentor. Mm -hmm. um, yes, Anne Monaco, uh, as I mentioned, she was the best ally anyone could ever ask for. And, um, and she sadly passed away. She was killed by a drunk driver um, a couple years later, and we lost her. Um, and I was devastated. And um, I, I was even um, suicidal and was uh, going to, thinking of self-deportation to Brazil, a country that I, I didn't even know the language of. Uh, I was devastated when Amonaco passed. Um, and I had to find a way to pick myself up. And I felt all alone. Um, and yeah, that's... Um, yeah. Thank you. But yeah. uh, there, one, one thing that, um, that I did not mention was um, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm backtracking in That's my okay. mind. <sighs> um, 
Yeah. Yeah, I miss Aminako a lot. Yeah. Um, She's very special. And, you know, I, I think part of the reason why I also want to do this episode with you is because her work needs to be honored. She is a pioneer mm-hmm. in this movement. And without her contributions to this, I mean, would we see DACA? Would we see uh, the Dream Movement? Would we see May Day? which happens every May that uh, sheds light and the voices of undocumented immigrants here. Uh, every time I go back to Amanako's story, I think about my teachers. I think about the people who have advocated for us on our behalf that, that made us feel seen. And I mean, just hearing about her story, I know it just touches a very sensitive heart because of what she's done to you as a person. But I also want to say thank you for bringing her name into this, but also the fact that her life has, in a way, her spirit has transferred inside of you. And and I think when you look back, what kept you going? The fact that she had already mobilized people for you and that you were able to mobilize people eventually felt that now you have a community, you have a family to to stand by you. So I really thank you for sharing the story of Anne. I know this cannot be easy, talking about her uh, impact on you and also her loss, but I think it's just so important to think about the people who have made it possible for you and so many others to uh, to survive, but to fight and to advocate and to um, and to uplift other folks. So thank you for that. Um, but during the times of the movement that for the past 20 years, I know that when you deal with these disappointments, when bill after bill keeps getting voted down, how do you and other uh, undocumented immigrants or immigrants in general who are not, who don't have the citizenship pathway, how do they, uh, how, I, I know you can't speak for everyone here, but how does one keep continuing and remain hopeful in the face of, of vicious opposition? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I've made a lot of friends over the years of uh, activism and they're undocumented, they're unapologetic and unafraid, and they are some of the bravest people I know. And they, they are the ones that got DACA to become in- implemented. And I want to stress that so much, that they were the ones that led a national movement they were the ones that came out to share the stories. They organized, they, uh, they demonstrated, they marched, and they did rallies on uh, social media, on video, on, in, um, in art form. Um, and you know what else they did was they organized safe spaces for others that were undocumented um, to meet and support one another. And most importantly, they also won 
the public support. I think that's extremely important that, uh, like uh, last year, the polls showed that 86% of Americans support DREAM Act. It's huge. And the undocumented youth did that. They did yeah. that. And they deserve that acknowledgement. They, uh, there's civil disobedience and their sit-ins um, and them getting arrested, risking their own lives and deportation um, and getting our parents to come out to fight as well. Uh, and now with Trump in office, um, they organized locally and we created uh, an sort of an underground railroad network for our undocumented neighbors. Um, but I really want to stress how important the youth are, the undocumented youth, they were the seeds that grew an entire movement uh, for immigration reform in this country. Mm. And I think it just shows you the power of what these movements have created, the coalescing of support to uh, not only support uh, dream folks, but also to support all undocumented immigrants uh, mm -hmm. to abolish ICE, which has been a common hashtag word that you see very often. And then which is also now going to defund cops, defund police, and to also give you a better, um, to kind of go further on this, police and ICE have worked hand in hand together to do ICE raids, to help uh, uh, racially profile folks. I mean, you look at the law of, the, uh, the law of Arizona years ago, uh, where it was the show me your ID, show me your papers mm -hmm. to people who are not white. Mm -hmm. um, and more recently, or I would say, I guess about 10 years ago, you became a U.S. citizen. And I was wondering how that came about. And I was wondering if you could share that uh, experience sure. and what that was like for you when you mm -hmm. became a naturalized U.S. citizen. Of course. Um, I just want to uh, touch on the police brutality um, that the police that are out there um, killing black lives and uh, hurting the protesters, these are the same police that put our immigration, immigrants in deportation proceedings. The police, the ICE, CBP, DHS, the military, they're all part of the same arm. They're all part of the same branch and they exist to terrorize people and not keep people safe. And this is something that we need to understand that these institutions are filled with so much corruption that is not talked about enough in the public face. Um, ICE, for instance, they harass women and children. They, they rape women. And uh, these people uh, that they harass are undocumented and are threatened with death. And, and these stories, are, are buried. And that's why people are protesting. And, and, and um, the, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and the uh, uh, immigrants being deported, these are all connected. Mm. 
And what would you say to those who are fighting alongside or those who are um, actively uh, fighting all together, whether you're an ally or a person who's affected by it in the Black Lives Matter movement, in the Abolished Ice Dream movement, or Native Americans who are uh, who are seeking reparations and their land being violated by corporate U.S. interests. So I wonder what advice would you have uh, to those who are still fighting? And I know that you are still very much in the fight. That fight mm-hmm. has never left you. No. And I, I think every one of them, I, every single one of them, we need them. These are the people that are going to... Um, bring about the change, protests are so important. It is a call to end police brutality, not just to end police brutality, but to end violence and uh, the lack of housing access um, and the violence of poverty, ending detention centers, ending concentration camps. Um, That's what protests are about. And and I think every single one of them, this is not the time to rest. It's time to stand up. And for those of us that have never stood up before, we need every one of us, every one of them. We all need everybody. And if we don't have everybody, change will not happen. Yeah. And right now, I think um, it's just the beginning of the fight. Mm. And going back to the the U.S. citizenship, yeah. Uh, when you became a U.S. citizen, what was the what was going through the process of becoming a U.S. citizen, and what does that mean for you now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Years later. So I was lucky enough to fall in love, <laughs> and he happens to be an American citizen. And uh, this is not to say that that is a path for people to get married (laughs) because that's just not how it works. Uh, And even when uh, Danny, my husband, and I got married, uh, it was risky. We had to be interviewed a few times and the interviewer had the power to deport me or not. It was scary. Uh, and in, in, while we were in our room to be interviewed next door, we could hear uh, another interview going on and the couple, uh, one of them was being deported or had a misdemeanor and he, uh, she was going to be deported. It was really scary. And uh, so this is just uh, part of the whole system, that uh, immigration system that is a failure. Um, And when I finally got my citizenship, it was unreal. Um, I was given a sheet of paper (laughs) that said, you are now not undocumented. And I was looking at it like, really? This is all it took, a piece of paper that has so much power in my life. And I cried for hours and hours and it was it 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 was uh it was completely surreal mm. you know it just kind of tells you like when you look at this moment all these years of 
having to be in hiding, um, having to deal with the torment from your parents' PTSD, uh, your relationship with them, uh, your encounters with the people in your life, in your community. It's just incredibly powerful how it all comes full circle and seeing how this movement has, in a way, turned a full circle, but again, with another new circle, especially as the fight for undocumented immigrants still continues to this day. Um, now that you have three kids, and I've been, I know that uh, every now and then you'll plug yourself off of Facebook every now and then, but I see your three kids and I'm thinking to myself, what must be Teresa think about when she sees her three kids? What does Teresa want to share with them about her life and her parents' life? And, and also, what do you hope that they become years down the road? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, obviously, like any parent, uh, I want my three kids. I love them with all my heart. And I want them to uh, grow up to be empathetic. That's number one. And uh, empathy goes a long way. Um, and it's important for me that my kids know my story and our history and American history and the world history. It's very important for them to understand how we came to be where we are today uh, and not to take anything for granted. To sum things up, and mm-hmm. I will, and I earlier I had talked about how we had met and just looking back, eight years ago, hard to believe eight years ago now that we had connected and your work has really, your story has really impacted me a great deal. Um, As I mentioned earlier, it has made me more empathetic, but also vigilant in the fight for those undocumented and those who don't have citizenship uh, privilege. And, you know, just seeing the progression in your life you know, over the years and also I've been very fortunate for the past eight years to see you continuing to fight and knowing that as a U.S. citizen, you have more leverage, you have more power to use your platform to uplift other undocumented folks, to uh, help mentor those who are looking to be in the movement, who who are afraid to expose their identity to their parents. And I think this is very important that mentors that people like Ann Monaco had set the standard for, you are now the mentor to so many young folks. And I think also what needs to be pointed out is when we think of the undocumented movement, it's very Latinx centered, but we also forget that APIs are very much a part of this. There is, I can't remember the estimated number of undocumented API immigrants. I gotta say at least it's a million, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know the number off of my hand, but it's a, it's a large number. Let's, simply and from the Philippines or from China or from other South Asian countries, just to name a few. Um, But it's incredibly important to think about the undocumented movement is not just limited to one uh, race, but it involves many other races that have been deeply impacted by uh, 
the non-immigration reform that's been happening for the past 20 years, the escalating police and ICE presence. So uh, I gotta say that another person I do wanna bring up is Michelle Bringas, who is a good friend of mine who I also uh, brought to KRCC at the time. Michelle Bringas uh, was the executive uh, director of the Northern Illinois University Asia Research Center. And I had invited her because we had not connected with NIU and they have a large Asian Research Center, but she had not been aware of what undocumented meant. So she was very curious and I told her about your story. And she came all the way from DeKalb to Chicago, which is like a good two hour trip just to see you perform and was so mesmerized by your story, your performance, when you played the piano um, that she invited you and uh, and just recently she decided to pursue her doctorate and her dissertation was about your story. So how does that feel mm -hmm. when you have the impact that you have on so many others like Michelle, myself and other uh, people who were not familiar with this work? Mm -hmm. I, um... I think that um, I have learned to um, share my story with others and to, um, I understand that my story is uh, something that, um, that uh, how, do, how do I put it, that, um, uh, that that it is not it is a story that um, I'm sorry I'm, I'm my okay. uh, I'm uh, my brain is uh, um, that uh, <laughs> um, that this is a, my memory my story but it is a story that I share with so many other people, um, like the nightmares. I share that story with other undocumented Americans uh, and the fear of cops. That is a st story I share with so many other marginalized people. Um, and I think that we, in, in general, we have so much more work to do um, and that we cannot just sit down uh, and wait until this uh, system uh, that fails us constantly is fixed. Um, we cannot just sit and rest until Black lives are freed, until ICE is abolished, until undocumented lives are freed until the marginalized are no longer attacked and incarcerated. Um, and so that's how I feel about my story being shared, mm. is that it's, it's everybody's story. Thank you so much for your time, Teresa. It is such an honor to have you on and to share your life story, which is both painful, yet beautiful, hopeful, and just a great, example of the complexities of people who are going through uh, the struggles of being undocumented to uh, to share the struggles of the movement 
of how this fight is continuing to be ongoing. And given what has happened with the current unrest today, um, these are examples that that things do not happen overnight. There's so many things to work towards uh, to uh, help amplify the messages and these stories that are very critical to U.S. history and rewriting our history to make sure that it's included and it's acknowledged that people understand the weight of American history as we speak. So thank you so much for your time, Teresa. It is, an, thank you, Randy. It is such a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Randy. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bun Me Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunme underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you. Thank you.